You're listening to episode three of the Inconvenience Podcast featuring Sam Harrow. Third episode of the Inconvenience Podcast. I'm Frank Beard. And I'm Al Abear, and Happy New Year. Al, this is our first episode of the new decade. I know, it's a huge deal. A new decade, new episode. Um, yeah, this is a big day. Big, big day. Yeah, it's hard to believe it's 2020. I mean, I was thinking, all right, I was born in 1985. Uh, looking at how far back that goes, I made me realize the original Nintendo system came out uh, just before I was born. And I think it was the... The equivalent is if a person would have had a been born in 85 and had a video game system from 1951 available, that's what it's like to a kid born today. Um, oh, wow. I don't know what yeah, to make of that, point. but it makes me feel old at 34 years old, so take it for what it's worth. Well, you know, I think we got our first uh, computer in 1995, and it was a 1.5 gigabyte Dell, and we thought, wow, a 1.5 gig hard drive, that's amazing, <laughs> and... We were so impressed with our our home computer then, and uh, I can remember uh, saying, well, the internet, eh, I'm never going to use the internet, I'm not going to order anything online, and, uh, you know, boy, I was wrong on that one, so. um, I mean, honestly, I bet in some of my boxes of my old things, I bet I've got an AOL trial disk somewhere. Oh, I'll bet. Those things, those things are never going to disappear. But I'm particularly excited about this episode. We have Sam Harrow as our first guest of the decade. And, you know, I think we all have, uh, you know, a good friend or a colleague or someone that we, you know, meet for coffee and chat retail with on a regular basis. And um, Sam and I do this quite a bit, actually. And I thought it'd be great, it'd be great to kick off the decade with just a conversation about just how much the retail environment's changed. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's changing every day. And, you know, having just coming out of the holidays, um, you know, when uh, our local mall, uh, there was all kinds of traffic on the street, but not not any traffic in the mall. So, uh, you know, historically, malls were packed with people. This year, ours wasn't. So uh, it's going to be interesting to find out what Sam uh, thinks about what's going on now and what his crystal ball says about the future. And I just want to remind all of our listeners, too, that um, on our website, if you click on the episode page for this one, you're going to find links to all of the things that we talked about. I mean, we mentioned a lot of books, a lot of articles. There's actually a lot of resources mentioned in this one. Um, Links to all of those are available right there. Um, Also, I post timestamps for every episode. You know, our goal was to build a longer format podcast. Uh, I know... We both really enjoy listening to that type of format. The challenge is that sometimes you got to start and stop. Sometimes you have to stop a third of the way through, or you forget where you left off, or you just want to skip ahead to a particular topic that you're really interested in. That's why it's important to have a timestamp of what we talked about or a list of all the timestamps. That's available. You can see when we start and stop some of our larger subjects. Um, additionally, all of our guest bios are posted on inconveniencepodcast.com. I would encourage you to read Sam's. We don't like to read those on air, but all of that is right there. So as well as how to get in contact with Sam if you want to. So that's there as well. Great. Yep. 
We're going to answer all your questions, and the ones we can't answer, well, we'll find them online. For <laughs> and um, I would also just uh, let everyone know, too, that we have a pretty solid lineup of guests that are coming here for early 2020. Um, I think you're going to be impressed with who we have on. We, we're going to have a lot of very different conversations coming, and I think we're both really excited about this. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be good. We're going to talk to some um, small store owners. We're going to um, uh, talk to uh, a dietitian who works for a C-store chain, which is I just so crazy out of the box. And, uh, you know, kind of take you inside some of these places and what they're doing and what you might be able to do in your store uh, to make a difference and to uh, set yourself apart from the competition. But I think we all know how much the retail environment has changed around us. We certainly all saw it on the holidays. Uh, retailers we thought would be around forever are no longer there. And, uh, yeah, let's get right into the conversation about this. Let's go. Sam, we were talking the other day about some of these defunct department stores that are around our, our city here in Des Moines, Iowa, and um, what it was actually like to shop there. Because, you know, so much has been written about why they failed and what was going on at the corporate level. But then, I mean, I remember walking into Yonkers, for example, before they shut down when Bonton went bankrupt. And it, it was like stepping back in a time machine. It was like going back 20, 30 years into a department store that just wasn't even relevant anymore. I mean, it was actually kind of a bad experience, but you made a comment about the shelving. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, well, if you look at those retailers, when you walk in, it's there's a stark difference between walking into a Lululemon or a Trader Joe's and walking into a Sears or maybe a JC, excuse me, JC Penny. The, the merchandising is vastly different. If you walk into a Sears or a JC Penny, you just look at the fixtures that they have in their store in their stores and you're looking at the, you know, shelving racks that the shirts are on and, you know, they have pants in 15 different sections. So you're coming in and looking for a pair of pants and they have, you know, four or five different brands um, set throughout the store. It's just not how, uh, you know, retailing should be in the modern, modern day. And it's not how customers want to shop anymore, really. You know, there's this, uh, um, kind of retail expert I follow on Twitter a lot, Neil Saunders. Um, gosh, I forget the company he works for, but <laughs> you know, he always posts photos of just department stores he's walking through. And he shared this one the other day that just made me laugh so hard. He's like, all right, Macy's is advertising on this uh, Thanksgiving Day parade um, to buy diamond rings at their at their store. Or no, sorry, it's JCPenney's. He's like, they're advertising to buy diamond rings at their store. And then he's like, but and he shares some photos of what it looks like. And he goes, but who would want to buy a diamond ring in this environment? It's just like a haphazard, messy store, um, poor merchandising. And, you know, I think it raises a good question of like, how, what do these stores need to be doing to stay relevant in the next decade? Um, And, you know, how has this formula really changed? Right. And you bring up diamonds and it's actually interesting. I was having a conversation with my wife about retailing and diamonds and, and where you purchase those. And we actually purchased ours on a online retailer, so we didn't actually go into the store. Um, so that was a different experience. But you, we've talked about this before, Frank, of the jobs to be done theory, and and what is that experience that you need to have in store, and what is that job that's actually being done? So if you go into a department store and they're actually selling diamonds, that's not the experience that you want. You want it to be clean. You want it to be. Um, kind of a romantic experience when you're buying a piece of jewelry or diamond or something uh, of that sort. So it's it's just very interesting to see uh, that type of merchandising happening at retailers still. And you look at it and you think, oh, that's got to be going away soon. And you are seeing that. Yeah. And for anyone that hasn't 
studied like jobs to be done. I just just Google it. There's an article from Harvard Business Review that's definitely worth reading. But I mean, the story and it was really simple. They were observing customers at McDonald's in uh, you know just what they were doing in the morning, and they noticed so many people are buying milkshakes. And they're thinking. Wait, <laughs> why are people buying milkshakes at McDonald's in the morning? And what they ended up finding out is it's not that people were milkshake aficionados and just love that particular one. These are people driving to work who wanted something that would take some time to eat, um, you know, something that uh, they could enjoy along the commute and um, something that would leave them full so they're not hungry before lunch. And milkshakes are very caloric. It's you know, gets the job done. I mean, it takes a long time to pull that thing through a straw. If you get a banana, I mean, you'll be hungry in 30 minutes. And um, it was never about the milkshake. It was it was all about what they were trying to get accomplished. And I think that's, um, yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting thing. It's an amazing thing that the uh, the shake machine at McDonald's was working. Uh, it's so seldom you find <laughs> those things working. And I found that it's because the employees, I, I've talked to some people who work there, they don't like to fool with the, the shake machine. So it's it's amazing that they were able to get shakes from McDonald's because those can be a challenge sometimes. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. Uh, my wife and I like to watch public freakouts on YouTube, and a fair number of those take place around the shake machine. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm very familiar with this issue. But yeah, this, you know, I think this gets to an overall question of, I, I think the landscape has just changed in retail for some of these once iconic brands. I mean, I mean, I'm 34 years old. I was a Toys R Us kid. I mean, I can't think of a brand that had such an insane amount of brand equity built up. I mean, I see the old commercials and I get a little emotional because that was the coolest place in the world as a kid. I remember the sound of the doors opening, the way the air blew across I could tell you where probably 50% of the products were actually located in the store still today. And um, so I remember when they went bankrupt and closed down around Des Moines. I went in, you know, the Toys R Us by us, and I had the same countertops that I put Nintendo 64 games on as a kid, right? And But Toys R Us back in the day, that was the only place to buy some of that stuff outside of maybe a paper catalog. No one else sold it. But suddenly they find themselves in a world where Target and Walmart have, I would argue, just as good, if not better, toy sections, especially Target. I mean, Walmart's no joke either. They've done a great job, especially as they've they've renovated a lot of their stores around here. Um, And then, of course, Amazon will drop anything they sold on your doorstep tomorrow. So why would you go to a Toys R Us? What was the reason to go there? At the end of the day, um, they were understaffed. They were dirty. Um, They just weren't a really pleasant experience. And yet before they were closing down, they're... They were testing, uh, for example, at one point, uh, augmented reality apps. I believe it was on your phone. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, that's the answer to your, to your problems. That's what they need. But I think the equation has just changed. It's, um, it's a different world for retailers. Yeah, it has changed. I think one of the interesting things that you mentioned there was it wasn't the technology. It wasn't AR. It wasn't VR that was going to save Toys R Us. It was the basic retailing 101 things that need to be done. Clean store, well-staffed, uh, friendly service. So... It's interesting to see when a, when a retailer starts failing, you know, they go to those things that are uh, flashy, you know, the new technology, but that's really not what needs to be done. That's not what would save them. It's the basic one-on-one things that uh, need to happen. You know, what do you guys think about retailers right now that are trying to do buy online, pick up in store? I can't stand that. I don't like doing that. I tell you, I, I I work with a lot of twenty somethings, and 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 they love it. And I'm, I can see the value. And I happen to uh, go to a Walmart the day before Thanksgiving, 
And, and it was it was like a third world country there. It was unbelievable. When I walked out of the store, and, and I was so glad to get out of there, there were two people waiting for one parking spot yelling at each other. And I'm thinking, there's going to be gunfire here over a parking spot. And yeah, I think that, you know, that day I decided I, I could have picked all this stuff up, you know, so... I, I think it's convenient. I think it's good. But, you know, beyond that, I'm seeing a lot of people I work with, they're using a company called Shipped that will actually go buy your groceries. They pick your vegetables out and everything, bring it to your home and deliver them. I think people, at least at least what I'm seeing down here uh, and the people I work with, they just don't want the hassle of, of you know, what you see in some of these stores now. And, and God, it's, it's kind of crazy, you know, uh, uh, Walmart can be crazy now, you know, but on the other hand, I have noticed down here, I don't know if you guys are seeing that up there, I'm seeing a, a real uptick in the customer service where people are saying, hey, can I help you? They're saying hello to me. Um, and that's been, you know, a, a very unique development down here. Are you guys seeing that up there? Yeah, I think customer service has, I mean, definitely been prioritized a lot more at retailers lately. I mean, I think they're starting to, at least I would hope a lot of them are realizing the value in that. But I, I still think a lot of these legacy uh, kind of iconic retailer brands, I think some of them actually do misunderstand what customer service means, though. Um, not to pick any pick on anybody in particular, but there's a large electronics store where I like to play a game when I go there. Um, my wife knows all about it because I've introduced her to it. We count how long it takes after we enter the store before someone like tracks us down and says, hey, hey, uh, can I help you find something? And the thing is, I am I like to think I'm fairly tech-savvy. I don't know if I've ever needed help finding anything in that store ever once, not even when I was a kid. Um, and it's not just that one person does it. It's like four people do it. And then one, one person got almost offended when I was like, no, I'm good. I don't need anything, and just stood there. And it's just awkward. Um, you know, if I need something, I'm going to find you. I just will. And I'll be, I'll be very nice about it. I'm, I'd like to think I'm a nice customer, but it's just like people don't need their hands held today. I mean, t- today's customer knows more about the products and the store associates usually do, unless you're going to maybe a guitar center or something. I think you have to train your associates, though. I think I think it's a lack of training is, is you, you have to have an associate who understands when to move forward and when to back off. And they're probably not doing that, you know, because uh, I know like at uh, some of the big box home improvement stores, I'm, I, you know, I'm I'm like your dad. I build furniture, things like that. And uh, I can go to a home improvement store and pretty much know what I need. So if they ask me, you know, they, they, you know, if I need help, they'll back off. And I think probably in some of these, uh, in, in the story you're talking about, you have very young employees there as a rule, very young. And I'm thinking these folks aren't told when to move forward, when to back off. Well, I think they're getting that mandate from corporate, don't you guys think? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah. think so. An interesting yeah. thing, too, Al, you mentioned the home improvement stores. You know, one maybe opportunity for those stores is hiring people who have uh, domain expertise. And so they know, and you can train them to say, okay, this is when you back off and this is when you approach. But if they have domain expertise, they might be able to add and say, hey, you actually you might want to use this screw. You might want to use that board. And there's opportunity there to provide extra customer service that is not there in the retailer over the past because our customers now know so much about the products. And so a way to, to uh, overcome that and use that as an advantage is have people there who actually know what they're talking about and can provide some customer service or, hey, maybe look at this product or look at this over here. You know, actually, I, I love ex- it when I find that. I love it when I find that kind of stuff in a, in a home improvement store. I actually had that experience at uh, Guitar Center yesterday. Um, 
actually, I realized I needed another, uh, you know, windscreen and um, was missing one and looked at some on Amazon. But you know how sometimes you go on there and you're like, all right, is this just being shipped from some random factory in China? And it's not very good. This particular one, I mean, there were reviews saying that they think the product was toxic. And I'm like, Ugh, I don't know if I need those windscreens. So just went to Guitar Center and thought I'd look at some microphones while I'm there. And it, kid you not, the store associate um, actually told me not to buy the ones they had. He pulled one up on his phone and he goes, this is a boutique company out of Canada. He goes, I use these for voiceovers. I put them on my drums. And he's like, we have some good stuff here. But he goes, just between us, if you take a look at this. But now, maybe the company wouldn't like that, but I thought that was one of the coolest things. I mean, here's someone who went way out of his way to pull up a product that he personally is really passionate about and showed it to me. And But honestly, I'd go back to that store for just that reason. I'll probably go buy stuff that they sell because of that reason. Because uh, I know I can – I feel like I can trust that person like they know what they're talking about. You'd probably – ex- Go ahead, I'll, Al. No, go ahead. I'll, I was going to say it's a great example of what Sam was talking about. When you go to a guitar center – because I shop at guitar center – so many of those people in there are musicians. They're they're playing gigs. They understand the equipment. Um, it, it's 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 a fun experience because these guys are they're playing at night. Conversely, sometimes when you go to some of these uh, home improvement centers, these folks are not going home at the end of the day and building something. They're not repairing something. They're just uh, they're just you know they're kind of counter help. They're store help. You're like and run. so guitar center is is. Guitar Center is a really good example uh, of what all these kind of specialty stores should be. They should hire people who know the products and know how to use it. And that's one of the things I love about Guitar Center. And it goes right back to what Sam said. So, Al, you're like Ron Swanson on Parks and, Parks and Rec, where you walk <laughs> in and it's like, I know more than you. I do. I do. I'm a, I'm a plumbing enthusiast. Plumbing is my hobby. I'll go install a faucet for a stranger. Uh, that's kind of how I am. I, I love it. You know, there's one interesting, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a trend, but, um, you know, convenience stores and home improvement stores are almost in the business of immediate consumption. And I think about home improvement stores and when do I go to home improvement stores? Well, it's probably on the weekend when I think, okay, I got to do this project and I'm going to do it today. So I don't have time to pre-order, pre-buy all these parts. So I need to go there now. So it's interesting to see that those retailers are still growing. Convenience store industry is still growing but they're almost in the immediate consumption business together. It's it's very interesting interesting to see on the home improvement side, but you know, it seems to me that overall um you really kind of have have two things that are needed from your customers though. It's like on one end you've got an exceptional experience. I mean, people will pay for an exceptional experience. Um I went to Verve Coffee Roasters out in uh, Melrose, you know, kind of out by West Hollywood a uh, few months back. And I had one of the best single origin pour of our coffees I think I've ever consumed. You know, the store is like a massive, like copper counter. Um, the food was amazing. I, I mean, it's it's a place like worth paying to go sit and relax and take some time to enjoy um, and just slow down for a bit. But then, um, you know, you also want meaningful convenience. You saw Starbucks opened up um, that store in New York City. I think it's modeled off something they've done in China, but it's it's a uh, basically pick up only. You can't go there and order. You have to order on the app and then you go pick it up at this store. But that's really meaningfully convenient for somebody who just needs to grab and go and maybe works in a nearby office or take Amazon Go. I mean, Amazon Go is like opening up a fridge and grabbing what you need and walking away. Um, You know, where those can intersect, I think there's a lot of value. But I just think for a lot of these retailers, though, it's just they, they survived by doing what had worked for decades when people needed them. 
And suddenly when people have choices now, they can afford to not go there. Um, I mean, you take a store like Sears, you kind of had to go to Sears uh, by and large for some of the stuff they sold for years. Um, but man, I walked in ours before it closed down. <laughs> we had one at Merle Hay Mall that had been there seemingly forever. I mean, I did family photos there as a kid, no joke. And um, I mean, it. first off, I was like, who buys a clothes in here? They didn't seem to be really designed for anybody in particular at all. And then, um, you know, you look at the appliances, the exercise equipment, they'd have like four or five choices, but they didn't really have the full selection that a customer would really want to look at. And today you can just go to a specialty store. You can go to Amazon or whatever you want. It just, it seemed, it seemed like a store from just another era that, um, didn't really realize times had changed. Yeah. I think one of the interesting trends you're seeing now is, um, it's kind of a larger trend, but there are those who are producing the products and those are who are delivering the products. And in the convenience store industry, we've always been in the delivering those products. You'll see some convenience stores moving to the own brand and having really strong own brands. Um, so I think that's an interesting way that you may be able to differentiate yourself and survive what is, you know, become kind of the retail apocalypse now with a digital era in e-commerce is you have to have products that people want to seek out. And you look at a Trader Joe's, for example, they're both the producer and the distributor of their own products. But uh, my family, we will make three trips to three different grocery stores. And one of those is Trader Joe's. And we may only pick up two products at Trader Joe's, or that's the intention, is to only pick up two products. We end up with two grocery bags full, but they have products that people seek out. So you need to look and say, okay, what are those products that people want that I can become known for? And that is a way to survive in this day and age. Yeah. And Trader Joe's has a lot that, um, you know, well, let me take a step back. What I like about Trader Joe's too, is I feel like things always change a little bit every time I go there. It's kind of discovery based, really. It's, you know, some, some grocers have the same stuff day in and day out, but Trader Joe's, there's always samples going on in the back of the store. Um, I always find something new. I've just never seen there before. And that's exciting. Uh, but you're right about destination products. I, I mean, I've got their truffle butter in my in my fridge and their urban garlic butter in my fridge. Um, when those go out, I'm going right back to buy more. Um, they're right. amazing. And it creates novelty. You go, to, you go to Trader Joe's and not every seasonal product that they have is a hit, but you keep coming back because you think, okay, what is Trader Joe's making for me next? Is it the pickle chips or is it the... Uh, peanut butter cups at the register. What is it that they're going to come up with for this season that I want to try? <laughs> That's a great point. I, I got to tell you, I we are about 60 or 70 miles from the nearest Trader Joe's. And there are people in, in, in my workplace that are so passionate about Trader Joe's that if I mention that we're heading to Baton Rouge, uh, oh, hey, you're going to go buy Trader Joe's. I mean, you know, no one cares about anything else except if we're going to go buy Trader Joe's. And I think they've done something amazing as they built this huge passion uh, for their store. And God, that is amazing. And I think it's, you know, it, it is the novelty, what's there, what's going to be there, the samples. It's, it is always something different. I just don't know if everybody can do that or if everybody has the... Uh, the energy or the passion to try to do that with their uh, their store. Well, now this is really getting at the topic of how to differentiate a store. And I think this is especially important for fuel and convenience, because let's be honest, I, I mean, there's a lot of stores in the industry that are just like every other store. 
I mean, yeah. same CPG products, same basic everything. I mean, the store itself is almost a commodity at that point. Sometimes you'll have four of them right by each other on opposite corners of the street. And, uh, you know, again, um, this raises the question of when people don't have to go to your store, um, why should they? I mean, why would someone drive out of, out of their way to visit your store? Um, and I think we're rapidly getting to a point where there's even more pressure on fuel and convenience retailers to have an answer to this, not just because there's so much competition from cross-channel competitors. I mean, you know, we have a Dollar General's building a DGX convenience store in downtown Des Moines now. Um, same block as Come and Go's new store that's coming out. I mean, Dollar General's are everywhere in Iowa. I mean, we've got that. But because there's some markets in the United States now where everything sold at a convenience store, including fuel, can just be delivered to you at home. So if someone doesn't even have to visit your channel, why should they? And um, you see some of the leading brands are um, you know, coming up with answers to that. But a lot of people still aren't. Um, you guys might have seen this, but um, Nax uh, in their state, state of the Industry presentation from last year had showed that if you look at the past 10 years um, and you look at the breakdown of in-store sales, the largest growth on the industry averages come from food service. But what's interesting is if you take the bottom quart or the two bottom quartiles of retailers at bottom half of the industry, their in-store sales contributions almost directly mirror the industry average from 10 years ago, meaning these guys are running a 10-year-old business model. And I think those are the stores we're talking about that aren't differentiated. Absolutely, yeah. Not to uh, go back to the Trader Joe's model too much, but if you you know, this is kind of a message to the other convenience retailers. You don't have to have every product in your store be a brand new, unique, seasonal product. You need, you know, one or two items that people keep coming back for and have that novelty. So it can seem like a daunting task to take a, you know, a pretty large scale operation and turn it into something that is fun and unique, but it doesn't have to be every product in the store. It just has to be that one or two items that people think, oh, you know, they might have something new for me. So I'm going to go check it out. I'm going to make that stop. Yeah. And I think we see that down here with food and that, uh, we have a lot of C stores down here that, um, have a daily lunch special, like a plate lunch. And, uh, there's a couple in particular that will have two or three different selections. And I'm, I'm talking about really great entrees. And I think that something different every day for folks around here and, and probably, you know, well, especially in the South would be, would be food every day. It's food. I, I've, I talked to someone in Texas who said, uh, Wednesday they do chicken and dumplings and they get calls from 50 miles away. People say, Oh, save chicken and dumplings for me. And so I think that unique thing can be the food and, and often is. Um, and, uh, I was, Telling Frank, I talked to Kent Couch. He's going to start doing pad thai on the sidewalk in front of his store, uh, which is so different. He's got a big. He's going to put a big walk out there and do pad thai, and it's going to it's going to get attention. It's going to draw a crowd, and that's going to be unique. And uh, it's I, I am going to be surprised if it's if it's not successful. But you know, that's the kind of stuff that that's kind of different and fun that that some of these smaller stores do. That you know, I, I think the big change just would never do that. And it's tough to. It's tough to scale on some of those. You look at the small uh, convenience stores, and you know we've talked before about convenience stores that have uh, sommeliers, and they have a wine pairing with everything in there. And mm -hmm. there are things that these small retailers are doing that are very unique and very cool. It's hard to scale that on a you know five hundred thousand convenience store um, scale. So it's it's tough to take those things. But there's little things you could do. For instance, you know it couldn't doesn't have to be your whole food service program, but maybe it's just your sauces. 
And so you have different sauces, and you are known for, you know, the place to go for all these different sauces to dunk your chicken nuggets in. And that's scalable on a on a large convenience store. Uh, you know, what do you think are some of the challenges, though, that prevent these larger chains from pulling that off? Um, I mean, let's take food service. It's just been an, I mean, it's been my observation that some of the folks that have done the best in this area, um, they've had individuals heading up that particular effort for sometimes a couple decades. And, um, you know, that makes a difference. You got to commit to it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is very tough to scale. Um, You know, the operational complexity of those is actually quite substantial on the fuel side. I'll give you a little example. There's regulatory stickers that we have to have on our fuel dispensers. And those change occasionally from season to season. And it is mind-boggling how difficult it is to get one sticker on a dispenser on an exact location across 400 stores, across 2,500 dispensers to get those right. It, it is, uh, it's quite a feat. So if you say, okay, that is a sticker that needs to be placed in one spot, and now you're talking about you know, creating a gourmet sandwich and changing that or creating a pizza, that is on a whole nother complexity scale. That's just pretty incredible to to take from a you know, a one one store operation to a five hundred store operation. You know, one of the things that I've noticed too, it seems like some of the major chains though, I think underestimate the complexity of food service. I think um I mean you get folks that are coming from a retail background and don't understand food service culture. And the two are extremely different. And you see a lot of simple mistakes coming from them. I mean, Al, we've talked about this before with stores that don't wipe the tables down when customers leave. I mean, no, oh, self, yeah. re- no self-respecting restaurant would ever do something like that. Um, but if you're going to spend all this money on new state-of-the-art buildings or you know, invest in some kind of new food service or whatever it is that you're trying to do, you kind of have to get some of, some of those basics right. Um, and it sends, it sends a wrong impression to customers if you don't. Oh, absolutely. I- I'm always stunned at that because... Especially places that remodel, they've got these great tables, and they've got new menus, and they've got kiosks, and uh, you, you see tables that, that are sticky and awful, and you, you go in there, and you're just trying to find one clean table, and you know, you're praying you're going to get that one clean table or the least dirty table. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm stunned at that, because you know, you, you've got employees who could probably be doing that. Uh, and I just think it's a, uh, a misuse of manpower when you don't keep the place clean. And, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about restrooms uh, forever. But, and a lot of people will go into a place, and if it's not clean, they'll just walk right out. They won't buy anything. Uh, and I'm hearing that more and more from customers that uh, they'll look around. If it's not clean, they just walk right out. So you, you know, lose the sale. And they may not come back. Yeah, they, they probably may not come, come back. back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they may not go to any other other stores in the chain because they're going to assume that every store is going to be like that. Correct. I'm always amazed at the retailers though that don't seem to monitor their online ratings and reviews. I, I mean, I never forget. I went in a store once, um, brand new, state of the art. I'd been to them in the past and was super excited to go buy some of their food. And I mean, everything looked great from the outside, but I walk in this one and. I mean, it was like a, it's just like a war zone inside. I mean, there's dried beans on the table. There's wrappers. There's utensils. Oh. Someone left a bunch of their loose change just sitting on a counter. No one had even taken it off. Um, I go up and place an order for something, go to the C-store side, get a few beverages, come back. And I'm told, oh, yeah, we don't have that. And I'm like, or no, he said, oh, no, it's not ready. And I'm like, well, I thought this was made to order. Oh, no. And like, it says made to order. Um, okay, I'll just get this. And it was just... A, 
horrible experience. And I get online and see some pictures that have been put uh, put up where this has been a problem for five, six months. And I'm just amazed that no one at the corporate level monitor this stuff because customers have been complaining about this thing for months and no one had done anything. Yeah. I mean, you know, go ahead. The, go ahead complex, the complexity of running a C-store is, is, is pretty amazing. You know, they're running, now we're running food service, we're running age-restricted products, and we also oh, happen to sell a flammable product outside. We're selling fuel. So, <laughs> you know, for a store manager to think about that is you have those three different businesses. It's, it's a lot to manage, but that's where the industry needs to go and needs to get uh, to a place where we can, you know, pro- proactively manage each one of these spots to stay relevant. But that gets into employee quality, though. And, you know, th- just my observation has been, I feel like there's two there's two distinct tracks being taken. One is the question of how much can I get away with doing for my employees? Like how much can I reasonably provide for them and be a competitive business? And there's a lot of retailers in our industry doing this. I mean, what uh, Quick Trip, actually both Quick Trips have done is absolutely amazing. Um, no one is ashamed to work at those companies. No one looks down on anybody who works at those companies. In fact, they'd probably be like, hey, can you get, <laughs> well, especially if it's a KT, can you get me some of those pastries or something? Um, I, I mean, they just have the best employees. They really do. But then you've got retailers on the other side of the spectrum that um, I think are like, how much can I not do for my employees? How much can I get away with not doing? But at the end of the day, um, and it's like the individual from the Good Jobs Institute says, if you just have this crazy turnover all the time because you can't meet their basic needs, you're not managing your business. You're, you're, you're just putting, fighting fires. But how do you, yeah. what's the answer to that, though? Um, what do you, you know, what do you do? I wonder if there is an answer. You know, when, when Sam said you're selling a, a flammable product out there, I thought there's got to be some managers or owners on some days go, wow, it's the end of the day and no one's blown up the block. You know, I because because you know we've all seen those kind of employees in stores, and and I think um, you know what what I see, and of course I'm I'm just in the small individually owned store, so I don't have you know your perspective about the larger ones, but what I see uh, from from a lot of people out there is they're it's it's almost like tending a garden. They are constantly trying to figure out how to keep their employees. And uh, they're always working on things. And, um, you know, I've, I've more than once, and, and yesterday I had a conversation with someone who owns a C-store, and, and they're constantly doing contests. Uh, you know, if you do extra service, uh, we're going to give you a $25 bonus that day. You know, if you do extra things, um, there are some people who give them, you know, uh, 10 gallons of gas, things like that. And so they're constantly trying to figure out how to, how to motivate the employees and how to keep them, I think a lot of that depends on your market. For instance, down here, I'm, I'm, you know, we, you know, we're oil country down here. And when the price of oil dropped, all of a sudden you had guys who were engineers working at Costco. You had guys who had amazing technical and mechanical backgrounds working at Lowe's because the oil field jobs dried up. But you go to the Pacific Northwest where the economy's great, people are making money. It's very difficult to keep people employed in sea stores because they can just walk out and get a better job. So, you know, so much of that is is where you are. And, and you know, uh, one owner told me, he said, I just cannot match some of the salaries that are out there. And you can't threaten to fire your bad employees because they'll just, okay, I'll just go to work somewhere else and make more money. Well, then you, you fire those employees and then you end up with crumbs on the tables. That don't get right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Big, giant, sticky uh, spots. Right. You know, it's interesting. So I've seen some of the um, 
you know, the best in class retailers and then kind of the lower quartile. And the range of turnover, you know, goes from 50% turnover, which is great in the industry and, and employees are sticking around. You can get up to 150% and think about, uh, wow. think about 150% of turnover. You're turning over more people every year than you're bringing in. And so trying to train and trying to, you know, communicate even the basics of retailing is very challenging at that point. So those, oh yeah, you know, those retailers are who are in that spot really have to take a look and think, okay, why is this happening? You know, is it a geography thing like Al said, or is it something else within the organization? And do a self-assessment and say, okay, we got to figure this out. If we want to be a best-in-class retailer, if we want to have the crumbs off the table, if we want to do good food service, if we want to, you know, have healthier products and and worry about food safety. We have to do things. We have to, you know, improve the hours. We have to change the schedules. We have to give better benefits. We have to make it a more pleasant environment for those uh, employees. You know, sometimes I've really got to wonder, though, um, and I'm not naming anyone in particular, just as a general observation, but like, sometimes I wonder if there's a disconnect from um, what folks at the corporate level think the experience is like for their frontline employees and what that frontline experience actually is. And, you know, part of the reason I say this, like, I mean, I, when I got out of uh, undergrad, I spent two years uh, teaching through uh, 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 Teach for America in Kansas City. And one of the things I noticed there is how district administrators were virtually non-existent in the schools. I mean, they talk on and on and on about what's going on and what the challenges are and what the solutions are. And they have zero awareness of what a day in a classroom is actually like. Well, I mean, most of them had never even taught before. And I just found that really curious because um, they're proposing solutions without understanding what the challenges or the problems are. And I it just seemed like, like an absolute model for failure. Um, I would have loved to have them come by a classroom, but when they do that, it's a big announcement weeks in advance. Everyone cleans up and makes everything look really good. I mean, the behavior and the experience changes drastically, and it's not the normal one. And, you know, it's sometimes with store visits and things like that. You set this up ahead of time. They know you're coming. And not that you can't get value out of that, but it's just not the real thing. And, you know, like I always joke about these stores that have lights that go out at night on their signs. Um, I mean, do some of these folks even visit them at night and see this? It, it's just, I think sometimes there's, there's, there's a disconnect and they just oh, don't absolutely. understand what it's like for their employees. I wonder if some of the people at the corporate level are even customers of their own stores. That's a good question. You know, That's a know, fair have, point. Yeah. Have you had the customer experience? Um, because, you know, depending on where you live and your hours and, you know, uh, your benefits and all that, you may not have a reason to go buy one of your own stores. And I think that's where you lose a lot is when you don't, don't experience what the customer experiences. You know, I remember reading an article, uh, remember back when Abercrombie was a hot fashion brand, right? They had that crazy CEO. Um, I don't know if it's Bloomberg or someone who wrote this big, big deep dive into him. I mean, it's worth Googling and reading. It's one of the most interesting things I've ever read. But they said when he would, he made a point to just go to stores all the time. And when he went in the stores, he wouldn't look um, at their P&L. He wouldn't look at um, how much theft had occurred. He wouldn't even look at that. He had a style book about how how many buttons are supposed to be buttoned on the hangers, how the employees are supposed to greet people. Like he had it down to the most minute details. And that's what he looked at. Because he, he he understood that experience at that store was so absolutely central to why people bought those clothes. And the image that he was projecting, for better or worse, is what was working. And I, I just found that fascinating. Mm-hmm. He spent so much time in stores. 
Yeah, it's- Academy is like that. Academy Outdoors is like that. We shot some stuff in an academy not long ago, and uh, you know everything I moved and touched, it, it was put back a certain way, and the buttons and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, I, I had no clue because I don't notice that kind of stuff. But boy, these guys sure did. Uh, I tore their store apart. I feel bad, but yeah, I, I see exactly what you're saying. But it's interesting to hear that uh, that's a thing in this that business, you know. Well, it's all part of the experience, too. Everything that you experience once you step, even before you step on the lot, is all part of that customer user, you know, journey and experience. So it's things you have to pay attention to. See, I was saying about that with loyalty programs. So many, I sorry retailers, but some of you guys got to read to your loyalty programs are not compelling. I mean, you know, we have to ask somebody all the time if they have your loyalty program. Um, I mean, if they're not wanting to use it, maybe they don't see the value in it. I think of my wife going into Sephora. There is no way she's not going to get points for that makeup. And it's a simple program. You just get to trade in some points and get samples of products that you might want to test out but not drop the full price on. I mean, it makes sense, right? But um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, just having a loyalty program is not going to be the answer to everything. But you, you know, you've got to have a compelling reason to use it. Well, it's got to be easy to use, too. It has to be easy to sign up, and it has to be easy to use every time that you show up. And I think that was one of the things that we were challenged with is what type of technology can we use to allow our, uh, our guests to have, you know, a seamless experience when they show up and that we almost recognize that they're, that they're here so that, you know, they're not typing in a long, uh, form, uh, phone number or, uh, pulling in their, wallet and having to swipe something how can we recognize that customer faster so that it's easy to use because if it's difficult to use it's not going to happen and your program's not going to be successful from the start a great point because i mean sometimes i just don't even you know it's been a bad day i don't even want to punch my phone number in you know i want them to (laughs) know when i walk in that store oh here's al he's part of our program welcome al um yeah, I, I, I experienced that just two days ago. I just don't feel like punching my phone number in. I don't care. And the other you know? part of that equation is the value of the actual loyalty program. And I've you know, th- done some thinking about loyalty programs. It's not good enough just to have a loyalty program. You actually have to provide value to the customer. And the customer is going to figure that out within a few weeks of having your loyalty program. And so if you are not providing that immediate feedback and that immediate value to the customer, the customer's going to go, well, okay, I got another loyalty program that I'm asked to sign up for today. Maybe I'll try theirs because this one just didn't provide that immediate feedback or the value that I see. So Al, when you say you, you thought, ah, oh, I'm just not going to use it. Well, that's not providing enough value back to you right. for you to even go through the motions of, you know, tapping your wallet or entering your phone number. It's that value has to be there and the retailers need to figure out, okay, if we're going to do this loyalty program, we actually have to put some effort into it and make it worthwhile. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's something too, that's interesting happening kind of on the apparel and fashion side of the industry of, you know, uh, retail as well, where some of these folks are starting to realize that there's a huge opportunity with loyalty, not to just be like, how can we, you know, build up some points and, you know, and get some discounts on things. But like, how can we take these people that are absolutely fanatical about our brand and give them access to things that, um, the general consumer may not have like how can we give them more of our brand and um give them more of an exclusive experience and i i always joke um i mean man if, if let's say bucky's hypothetically introduced a loyalty program tomorrow where 
whatever my points or however it's calculated, I could get access to, let's say, a hoodie that no one else can get or limited edition merch. I mean, I'm up here in Iowa. I'd be knocking down their door to try to get access to buy things online so I could build up points on this because that, I would actually want that. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people would too. I mean, it's just an example. But, you know, I would tell everyone, take a look at what Nike's doing with their uh, with Nike Plus, what they're doing with their like the Nike by Melrose store. I mean, if you're a Nike Plus member and you walk in these, uh, I think they're Nike Live stores, and Nike by Melrose was the first one, I believe, and, um, and I, I've been to it. It's it's a really cool store. The inventory is built around the online purchases of Nike Plus members in that zip code, so it's kind of personalized in a way. The inventory changes biweekly, or at least you know parts of it change biweekly. Kind of feels like a community hub, but they got a vending machine in the back where you can scan your QR code from uh, Nike Plus. And I think it's once a week, you can get a free pair of socks out of there. I mean, I'm a sucker for stuff like that. I almost wanted to sign up right then and there just to get a pair of socks. But then I'm like, no, that'd be silly. I don't live here. But um, yeah, I I thought that was a really interesting strategy. Well, it's the old surprise and delight. And it's what are those little things that you can do that you have the the leverage of being a big organization? You have the power, the buying power. You have the connections to partner with other retailers. You know, what can you do to surprise and delight what is your free pair of socks that come out of a vending machine well and i think this gets to an issue it's gonna be really important though for this next decade i i mean i know we've all noticed this but you'll get like for example somebody's like retail gurus writing for major publications and um you know commenting on everything and you always see like a certain trend gets observed and then it gets blown up and extrapolated into the answer for everything and then it's all over articles and i was reading one the other day about tech and retail and what's coming down the pipeline. And the person who wrote this was going on and on about augmented reality and how we need AR changing rooms and all this. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, it's still not going to tell me if my jeans actually fit. I mean, you got to sit down, you got to like move around a little bit and think, all right, how much are these probably going to stretch as I wear them? So are they going to be too big in two weeks? Um, Are these, you know, there's all these factors that go into that. And at the end of the day, I just want people to have the jeans so I can try them on. But, um, you know, again, before Toys R Us went out, they're putting augmented reality in their stores as if that was the answer to everything. And I think it's just so easy to get caught up in this flashy tech and not really understand, like, is is that going to make a real difference or is it just kind of like window dressing? And, um, you know, I mean, yeah. it kind of comes in into the loyalty programs, too, unless you've got one that is really hooking people and providing some value. It's just another thing in the store. I mean, tech's not going to, at the end of the day, tech is not going to fix a bad retailer. At least I don't think it will. Right. And I think that comes back to knowing your customer. You have to, you know, are you in tune with your customer? Are you a customer? To Al's point, are you a a customer of your own, um, of your own store? So I think it comes back to knowing, you know, is this tech the answer? Is this something that people are going to find valuable? And then, you know, pilot it before you go full full board with everything. You know what I would prefer people do before they even go down that route is go into their stores and use the use the use the restrooms and see if you're comfortable oh, yeah. with them. <laughs> I think that'd yeah. be a great start. I mean, I'm I'm always amazed at uh just every now and then you'll see a restroom in a convenience store where you're like, "Oh, come on, guys, like you you got to got to stop this." But then, you know, you look at um I saw one the other day. I had the chance to meet one of the owners of Greater I-55. Uh, I think it's Greater I-55 Truck Plaza. It's in Bolingsbrook, Illinois. Um, met him. Uh, met one of the owners. Met her at the uh, um, uh, Natso's conference last year. Natso Connect, which was a phenomenal conference, by the way. I was 
some of the best conversation I've ever seen at a trade show ever. Um, highly recommended. But anyway, she pulls out her phone and was showing me what they did for their uh, new restrooms. And you can find it right now if you Google it and go to their website. They're up, their uh, renovation photos are up. Those look like restrooms out of a fancy nightclub. Wow. I mean, they are... I don't know if I've actually seen restrooms that are nicer than this. Uh, the trucker showers have, um, you know, those bo- kind of clear glass bowl sinks that sit on top of a table. Uh, the trucker bathrooms have ones that are shaped like leaves. They have tile on the wall that kind of has like a rainbow glitter to it almost. These are nicer than what I bet anyone has in their own home. And I mean, this truck stop's got a gym in it for the truckers, everything. And it's just like, this is a place that you would feel comfortable stopping at to use a restroom and maybe buy a few things when you're on the road. Um, but yeah, to your point about experiencing your store, like, gosh, go inside and use the restrooms. If if you're not comfortable with that experience, why would you assume your customers will be? Oh, absolutely. I tell you what, if you go into a restroom and it feels like the uh, opening scene of the movie Saw, uh, you you got a problem. <laughs> you got a real problem. And, and we've been in those places, too, where, you know, I have this line that I always use, great place for a murder. And <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced people don't go to their own restroom. Well, but I a- think sometimes individual owners pop in, pop out, and never make it to the restroom. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. And actually, Sam, that gets to something we were talking about the other day. So again, depending where you live in the United States now, there's places where everything at a convenience store, including fuel, can be delivered. Um, I mean, I've had a chance to visit with Filled before and watch them fill up a car. It's got about a 45, I think 45 or 50 foot hose on these trucks, premium and regular. Um, They'll ask you, do you need fuel today? And while you're sleeping, they'll just fill up your vehicles very minor delivery fee. I mean, honestly, if it was here, I'd probably sign up for it. I think it's pretty cool. But um, how do you get a person to come to a store when that's the, if that's the new reality? And then pair that with GoPuff. I mean, delivering uh, 2,500 you know, SKUs um, in 20 minutes, roughly. I've used them, and they're great. Yeah, I mean, I think you, when you look at fuel delivery in particular, you know, that's a customer that is, is uber time-sensitive, and they're willing to trade a little extra... Uh, dollars for the time that's saved for them not having to go to the store. And they may not be the customer that is coming to your store to begin with. And so I think you look at that and say, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for these traditional fuel retailers to partner up with a fill, the Yoshi, a, a booster, and to get that customer back that is not shopping at the convenience channel right now. They may have shopped at that channel in the past, but they're not there right now. And how do you bring that fuel? How do you bring those snacks to them through a service like that? I mean, honestly, the convenience store could really just be a distribution center at this point if it's done right. Absolutely. I think that's the future when you look towards uh, autonomous vehicles. If you think about an Amazon coming in, uh, the fastest, uh, most efficient route for an autonomous vehicle to get someone from A to B and then have a stop in between are these short trips you know, these small distribution centers um, within a city. So a, a convenience store, if you think of it as a, a local distribution center, it's faster to go to that corner and come back than it is to go across town where Amazon's building a giant warehouse full of their products. So, you know, the future of convenience retailing may just be using that property as a distribution center where these autonomous vehicles come pick up the snacks and then pick up the uh, person on the way. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. I know some retailers have experimented, I mean, with delivery in various forms or apps to, uh, you know, do something similar to GoPuff. But, I mean, GoPuff provides such a great experience. Um, I mean, I've told the story before, but I was in a hotel and wanted a Corona, and it was $10 in the minibar. 
And I'm thinking, all right, I'll just hope by Vanderbilt University, I'll have GoPuff deliver it because they're by seemingly every big college now, right? And uh, and they give you a loading bar in the app like Domino's Pizza, who, have, by the way, is amazing at delivery. And they were there in 20 minutes, had what I needed. It was pretty much retail price. I didn't feel like it was marked up very much. Um, it's, you know, and speaking of Domino's, what I found interesting about them gosh, the last five years or so, I don't know if they've really done any innovation on their pizza. All their innovation has been, how can we make it easier for people to order a pizza wherever they are in the context they're in and on their terms? I mean, they'll even deliver to hotspots now that are just areas where they've dropped pins on the map in public places. And I mean, you could be on the beach and be like, man, I want a pizza right now. Get on your phone and Domino's will bring it to you. On Absolutely. the beach. Yeah, Domino's yeah. Domino's is a tech company for sure. And they're they happen to be selling pizzas at this time and it could be something else in the future, but they're uh, by and large a tech company. And you basically say the word pizza and a pizza shows up at your yeah. doorstep. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting though with with delivery too. I've noticed this because I I went through a big food delivery phase the last couple of years. Now I've pulled off it because I've realized I'm just throwing my money away, but and I can vacuum seal good food and stuff my freezer. But um, I mean, I still order it when I'm traveling for for business or whatever. But if you're a third-party delivery company, or even if you have your own, you've got to watch how you handle that food in in the meantime. I mean, I've had I've had stuff show up just leaking out of the containers. I've had stuff handled poorly. I mean, but I've even had restaurants um, put it in just containers that don't that don't retain the heat very well, or maybe uh, make it easy for like Chinese food to leak or something. And uh, I mean, but especially when you're using a third-party company like that, if they if they mess something up, it kind of reflects poorly on your restaurant, even though you didn't have control over that, at least direct control. Oh, it absolutely does. And I think that's a big um, kind of elephant in the room that doesn't get talked about all that often is the food safety. And as you're outsourcing your kitchen operations to these ghost kitchens and having third-party delivery is, how do you maintain quality? And not only quality, how do you maintain the food safety? And that is a, a problem in a challenge for both traditional uh, retailers and QSRs and now the C-Store as the food service, but also as you outsource those operations. Well, and... and oh, sorry, go ahead, Al. No, I was just going to say, and, and you know, I'm, I'm hearing more and more about what Sam just said, that, you know, it seems like for so long, we've had great trust in those people who bring us our food. Uh, and what I'm sensing now especially with some of the younger people I work with is that they're beginning to question, gosh, do I, do I trust that? Like when it, okay, we're okay with the folks at the Domino's, uh, or we're okay with the folks at this place or that place, but, um, are we okay with the people who deliver it? You know, and, and I'm, I'm hearing that now and I didn't used to hear that before, but I'm, I'm, I'm picking up on that. And, um, every once in a while we'll have stories come across the feed that, uh, that seem to reflect that. So, yeah, I think there's going to be, I, I think something's going to have to happen to, to as, as time goes on. And, and if people continue, if this, tr- if this is a trend and it continues that we're going to have to, they're, they're going to have to figure out some way um, to make people feel comfortable about, uh, like you said, food safety and, and those people who are delivering it. Cause man, we're hearing a lot of crazy stories. Well, you kind of need tamper proof packaging too. Yeah, I mean that would do it. Yeah, and, do pa- it. and there's opportunity in the packaging side too. If you think about that, you know, you're trying to deliver the food from a, you know, it starts hot. And you're trying to get it to a the sim- similar temperature when it delivers. There's opportunity there in the packaging. 
you know, and it'll be interesting to see how third-party delivery plays out here um, now that we're in this new decade, too. But I've heard a couple sto- – heard a story last year that was really interesting on the convenience store side. Um, there's uh, – I was in, I was in uh, 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 Sydney, Australia, and I met an individual at a conference who works for Vantage Fuels and Bowser Bean. So Vantage Fuels <laughs> – it's such a cool story. They had tried to create Vantage Fuels coffee. Well, they're – Outside of Melbourne, you know, everyone there thinks that's the best coffee in the world. Um, point is, there's sky high expectations for coffee, so they might not really want to buy a fuel brand's coffee, right? They decided to um, create their own brand called Bowser Bean. And seriously, Google these stores. I think these are some of the nicest convenience stores I've ever seen. They're all unique. One of them has a pinball machine that's a Vantage Fuels pinball or Bowser Bean. But he was telling me they started work delivering through Uber Eats and they noticed that. Um, all people see is the Bowser Bean logo. They don't see Vantage Fuels. They don't see the fuel pumps. They don't see any of that traditional stigma. They see this amazing, really clean, well-designed logo. It says Bowser Bean, and then a list of great food. I mean, these online marketplaces, honestly, done right. Um, they kind of get rid of the fuel stigma. They do, absolutely. And the interesting thing about the where the food service industry is going and, and you know the coffee, the Bowser Bean example, is that um, anyone with a recipe can now be their own food service and you can get that outsourced and you can, you can just have your food created and made at a, a ghost kitchen or a, a third party kitchen. And now you are, you know, now you're a food retailer, now you're a restaurant. So it's very interesting to see that transformation happen. You know, don't you think food provides such a great, I mean, a great way to provide a personalized experience for for folks. I mean, it's it's hard to do personalization in some retail environments, but when you're sitting on a touchscreen and you have full control over what do I want in here, what do I not want in here, what, what do I want double of, what do I want half of, I mean, the options are endless, really. And you can do so much more with a limited assortment of ingredients, too. But, um, you know, like I love going to Sheets, for example. I remember I took a friend in there one time. We were on a long trip, we had to catch a hotel because it was late, and there was a sheets by the hotel. And I'm like, hey, that's where we're going for breakfast tomorrow. And he gave me this look like, no, I don't want to go in any more convenience stores, especially not for breakfast. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Trust me on this. You should have seen his face when he got on that touchscreen. He looked like a kid in a candy store. He left with so much food. Um, I think, you know, they would always try to upsell you on, do you want cheese sticks or onion rings on this? I think he just went yes on everything and bought so much food there, but just a look on his face, like he loved that. That was his first time there, and he thought it was the coolest thing. And um, I mean, just something as simple as touchscreen customization, which I'd say is something as simple as it's not simple, but something like that. Wow, that makes a huge difference. That's so relevant. Oh yeah, yeah, and we're and we're seeing a lot down here. I mean, I'm in the deep, deep south. I'm 20 miles from the Gulf of Mexico as a crow flies, so it's hard to get more rural than, than where I am. And um, <clears throat> We're seeing touchscreens and C-stores down here. Um, but there are still some people who want to walk up to that counter and talk to a human being. Uh, so that's kind of interesting, too, to see that's still a thing. Speaking of which, this is an interesting topic. What do you guys think about this? I mean, do you think today's customers really want to have a whole lot of that interaction with a store employee? I think some do. You know, I had this conversation with, with Kent yesterday. Uh, and, you know, I... I Here's what I think customers want, according to, and I agree with him. They want it, but they want it quick. They want to come up there. They want they what he sees in his business. Now he's in Bend, Oregon, and every every place is different. You know, I imagine in New York City would be completely different than this, but I know down here it's kind of the same. Um, 
no one wants to stand in line and listen to an employee have a conversation with the person in front of them. They want to, you know, do the transaction, uh, be nice. It's sort of like uh, speed with heart. That's what he called it. Uh, you know, quick, but have some heart to it. Know their names and, and get them out of there. And, and so I think for some people, yeah, they do want that. You know, I had a, a guy tell me once, he, he managed about 10 C-stores. He said, you know, he's, every day he told his employees that these people come in here, they may not like their spouse, they may have a job they hate with a boss they hate, and the only smile they get that day comes from you behind that counter. And so I think there are still those people who who want that connection with the community store. I, the thing I keep hearing from so many of these small individually owned stores is that we are community stores. You know, we're where people come and they, they, they're comfortable here. And so I think there are some places where they want it, but I, you know, that may be a market to market thing, Frank. It may be, but it's also, um, I think it goes kind of back to that jobs to be done. There are some people who want that social interaction and that's why they come to that local community store. Right. So you get those people in there who want that longer, um, you know, that connection. They want to actually have a conversation with the person um, who's checking them out. But then you get the people in who say, if that person's having a conversation in front of me with the employee and nobody is coming to help me, this is the last time that I'm going to stop here. Because what I want is fast. I'll have a quick conversation with somebody, but, but I want to be respected. My time, right? I want that to be respected. So I want to be in and out quickly. Fast with heart. Fast with heart. And asked with heart. I mean, but that feeds into the turnover problem too, though. It's you can't be a community store if the community is. I mean, if the folks there leave every every two three months. Yeah, which is why I think some of these stores are are implementing strategies to try to hang on to their employees. You know, I walked into a C store one morning. Uh, I was going to do a story on it, and there's the mayor, the sheriff, the city councilman, someone from the DA's office, everybody sitting in the C store having coffee. And uh, the owner of the store kind of standing there by the table, you know, and I was thinking, wow, this this is kind of what the old general stores that you see in the old movies was like. Everybody comes there. Well, now everybody's at the C store doing that in this little town. And uh, this this guy had a pretty thriving business. He had 1,800 sales a day. So that was a pretty wow. busy store. But, uh, yeah, those those kind of places, I think, exist and people want that. But I do think that, you know, if, if you're on a um, – if your store is on a uh, on an interstate or on a busy highway, uh, people want to come in. They want to get out because they got to go to work. Um, they may not need that that interaction. Well, so Sam, I think this gets to the question of you know now we're in this new decade. I think a lot of these retailers are going to have to really leverage some of their 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 you know the good ideas from their own employees and think of like how what can we do to stay innovative. Um, I know you've had some experience working on an innovation team, so. What what do you think is a good way to go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, at Come and Go, we put together an innovation team. Uh, there were seven um, cross functional members of that team, and you know I can kind of share with you some some insights and some learnings from that. And I think one of the most important things that we learned is the the directive has to come from the top. The top of the organization and all the senior leaders need to be bought into the idea that. If we come up with ideas, if we innovate, that something is going to change and something's going to be implemented. So I think that's step one is gaining the, the buy-in of everyone and having that come from a top directive. It can't come from the bottom up. Um, another thing that we learned is you know, having a clear directive and having a clear problem that you're trying to solve. And it's, it becomes too general when you say, okay, we're going to go out there and innovate. 
And so everybody get in a room and say, okay, let's innovate. Well, you know, what are the boundaries? So putting some type of boundary on that and having a clear problem that you actually want to solve and, and maybe we want a new business venture, or we want a new way of serving coffee, or we want a new way of getting our goods to customers that are in their homes. So having that clear directive, I think, is another important thing um, in that process. Um, beyond that, you know, when you get this group together, whoever it is, you get them outside of your industry. Get them outside of your competitors, your day-to-day. Get them outside of the convenience store industry in this example. Get them out to other retailers. Get them out to service businesses. You really have to open their eyes to what's out there. Um, so another thing that we learned was that it may be called innovation, but it may be innovative to your company, not necessarily innovative in the whole industry. And I think that's something that you need to accept as a team and say, okay, we're not necessarily going to come up with the next Amazon Go. This might be Amazon Go for come and go. Um, and so you take a look at that and say, okay, you know, can we be iterative and not innovative? Or is it innovative to us? And that's still innovation in my mind. And so you know, giving yourself the the leeway to have that as an option to say we're not necessarily going to push the boundary of every everything that's out there but we might be able to adopt some cool technology some cool ideas and bring them into our organization that are probably more scalable and applicable than coming up with the next amazon go because that's challenging being that first leader in the market it's it's a lot easier to be a fast follower and to be able to pilot things and then scale it out from there so that's you know and I- I think it can be hard for for retailers to get to a point though where they build a team like that, which I think it's so cool. Come and go did that. That's absolutely amazing. Actually, how how what would your advice be to a retailer to build something like that? Like, how do you get started? Because sometimes you've got so many competing priorities, and you know, kind of um, just individuals who control different. You know, there's a lot of just competing interests within an, a large organization. Sometimes, how do you overcome that and get people together to actually create good ideas? Yeah, I think you know, it kind of goes back to starting from the the top and the culture and having a culture of uh, innovation and talking about it with in your teams and having, uh, we used to have meetings where we would set aside time just to talk about blue sky ideas and throw ideas out there and just have it all the way down into the team meetings at an individual level, not necessarily just coming from a, uh, you know, an annual meeting and having it be updated that we're now going to be innovative, but actually getting that down into the culture to say to the, managers and individual contributors that pay attention to innovation and let's actually talk about innovation within the organization. Um, From there, I think you have that business problem that you need to solve and, um, you know, talk to your employees, get people excited about it. And then from there, what we did is we had people apply to uh, be on this team and tell why they think they could bring innovative ideas to the organization and why they would want to be a part of something new and something different. So uh, that's what we did. It was one way of doing it. It worked pretty well. Um, You'll actually see one of the ideas uh, coming to life in downtown Des Moines. You mentioned Dollar General. There's a a come and go urban store that's going in uh, here in early 2020. That's a product of that innovation team. 
Yeah, I'm excited to see how that plays out. I I know the focus, what I've heard, is supposed to be more on kind of fresh and healthy. And I remember uh, Quick Trip with the Q or QT, they had one in Midtown Atlanta. I went to a few few years back that was really neat. And I love that idea of urban stores for convenience store brands. And even from a marketing perspective, I mean, it just raises the profile of the whole brand. It makes it look a little edgier, a little more just cool in a way. Oh, absolutely. And I'm a, I'm a fuel marketer by uh, trade, so... It, for me to get rid of the fuel at a at a convenience store is a little bit of a sin. But when I take that fuel hat off and I look at the convenience store and I think, okay, now we don't have the burden of putting tanks in the ground. Now we don't have the burden of carrying a you know a, a hazardous material at our locations. We can put these stores anywhere. We can put these our brand anywhere that our customers are. And so it makes us a lot more mobile. You know, if we want to put a shipping container with our name on it and have people come in and take products and go out. Uh, we can do that versus putting tanks in the ground. And honestly, I think Come and Go has done a lot of a lot of really commendable things on how they've tried to rethink what does a modern convenience store look like. You know, we were talking about this. I love how you go in a store now and the employees are they almost it almost feels like an Apple store the way they're dressed. They're I've seen guys wearing hoodies with a Come and Go logo. Um, I mean, they've I've actually got one of their fanny packs. I thought it was so funny that I had to order one of the pink Come and Go fanny packs. <laughs> Um, but they've been, they've been good about trying to get on the, um, the trend of offering your, your own merchandise, your own branded merch. And, uh, I think it's cool that you go in and employees aren't in these boring uniforms. They feel like relaxed and casual and they're wearing come and go clothes. It, it, it really, it's a subtle thing, but it changes the experience a lot. Yeah. And I think it changes the experience actually for the, uh, associates as well. So it, you know, it goes back to that 150% turnover, 50% turnover. If, um, it associates happy and they won't be walking across the street to the other major retailer. There's a couple locations that we had where there were three major retailers on, on a corner and you could see the sign that said now hiring, now hiring, now hiring. And what, you know, what would make somebody walk across the street and apply, um, across the street. So you really have to think about that when you're, uh, you know, as a company culture and, um, as a corporation, you have to think about that. I mean, and honestly, that's just a reality. I, I'm sure you're talking about here in Des Moines, Iowa. And um, I mean, folks don't realize it, but Des Moines is one of the most hyper-competitive convenience store markets in the United States. I mean, people think of us as flyover country, but then there's a reason why there's not a lot of independent retailers around Des Moines. It's all major chains. I mean, you've got, for anyone who's unfamiliar, Come and Go is obviously here. They're headquartered out of downtown Des Moines in a really new, amazing, beautiful building, by the way. Um, but uh, QT has a large presence. Casey's is headquartered in nearby Ankeny and is all over the place. You've got, uh, well, Hy-Vee, of course. Hy-Vee's headquartered here, and they're really investing heavily in rethinking what a convenience store is going to be for the next decade. Um, their fast and fresh stores are massive with freshly made food. They're, re- they're renovating the older ones and rebranding it from Hy-Vee Gas to Fast and Fresh Express, I believe. Um, but then, of course, Yesway is headquartered here. They have some stores in rural Iowa. And then Quick Trip with a K or KT is moving south now and is building all over the area. It is super competitive here. It absolutely is. It is yeah. crazy. And it goes back to that innovation. It's it's a cool place to be to see what uh, the convenience store industry is doing as far as innovating to compete with each other. I think so, too. You've got a lot of brands with very different approaches and brand personalities that all exist here. And um, it's, it's crazy to your point about four stores there. You'll drive by and all four of them will be busy. Mm-hmm. Completely, completely busy. But this actually, you know, this gets into another question, too. Um, you were mentioning <laughs> the convenience store without fuel. 
what are what are some of your thoughts on uh on fuel because we've we've talked about this recently too but um i i think sometimes and i'll say this delicately some of the uh, legacy brands tend to overestimate the value of a logo on a canopy to drive business um the data i've looked at suggests that um you know, the transaction data I've looked at from fuel customers suggests that they're not particularly loyal to one brand for fuel. And I would suspect that some of that loyalty is really just convenience-based. I'm turning right to go to work and this station is always here. It's an easy place to fill up. Or a situation where if you're buying coffee at a store for four mornings a week, eh, you're probably likely to buy some gas there too when when your car gets on E. Um, You know, what are some of your thoughts on fuel for this decade moving forward? Yeah, I think if you look back and you look at the regional retailers that have really taken over the markets and started expanding and you're looking at the major brands. I think what they have missed is that the customers are looking for a convenient location. Yes. So if you have the best corner, but they're also looking for those things like the clean, excuse me, the clean bathrooms, the well-lit canopies, the clean dispensers. They're looking for reliability. They're looking for, um, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about guaranteed gas before. They're looking for a company to stand behind what they are. And if you have a regional player, like a come and go, like a quick star, like a, a quick trip, you know that they're going to stand behind what, they, what they're offering. So I think people are looking for, you know, that convenience, the safety, and the reliability is really what they're looking for. Yeah, it seems like... Uh I mean, one thing I, I find interesting about fuel, um, I mean, I, I remember the days when I was young and, and I'd hear radio ads about fuel quality. I mean, it's almost laughable to think about that today, about a radio ad about fuel quality, because I'm like, how many folks are leasing a car that they probably don't really care about the long-term implications of fuel quality for, um, are leveraged up to their eyeballs in debt, uh, college, mortgages, credit cards, whatever it may be, and have very little disposable income. The idea that you're going to sell them on fuel quality to me almost seems silly. Yeah, fuel quality yeah, is that's a hard fuel argument. Fuel quality to make. is an interesting uh, thing, and the evolution I think has been that in the past fuel quality was a major issue, and it was a way that people could differentiate themselves on. Now, as the supply chain has improved, the fuel quality for your regular street grade has gotten a lot tighter. As far as competitors having similar products. Uh, you know, we'll have additives, and that can be a differentiator, too, and those those do work, so those are important. But it has gone from the days of, I fill up, I might have an issue with this gas station's gas, to I pretty much can fill up at a, a respected retailer, and I'm not going to have any problems. I think one of the interesting things that you're seeing, and I'm looking uh, to see how this plays out in the future, is the diesel side. If you look at diesel, now diesel is a situation where you have to have good quality diesel. You have to have the right specs. When it gets cold here in the north, when it gets below freezing temperatures, truck drivers know that you need to have quality diesel and you need to have the right additives in there so that they can stay running on the road. And that's probably the biggest uh, area of focus for convenience retailers and fueling retailers going forward is going to be that diesel side. And what is, you know, what does that premium diesel look like? Can you offer that? And can you keep that quality up? It sounds like that opens up an interesting marketing opportunity, though, for truckers as well. It does, I mean, absolutely. To get that message in front of them. Absolutely. Yep. And the 
and truck drivers know the importance of that premium diesel. And so, you know, in the wintertime and in the summertime, when they're looking for better fuel mileage or they're looking for better performance in cold temperatures, they know where to go because there are retailers out there who are taking advantage of that premium diesel offering. And there are retailers out there who are falling behind on that. You know, and to your point, though, about the fueling experience, um, I think I, I think that's a huge point, though. Um, you look at come and goes new fuel canopies on the marketplace stores. I mean, that's a really pleasant area to refill a car. It's it's well lit. It's well designed. It's extremely modern. Um, it's just it feels safe. It's interesting to me, though. Um, if you look at if anyone's looked at CSP's fuels fuels fifty list, I believe they're just using uh, fleet car data from Opus uh, to calculate this. It's really interesting. They show essentially who's most efficient at selling fuel on a per location basis, like who who sells the most on a per site basis. They compare um, you know market share to outlet share and calculate a number. All the top brands on that list are major convenience retailers. In fact, Come and Go did really well on that list. Um, I mean, but it's obviously Bucky's is number one. They're kind of an outlier. Um, but then you see Royal Farms is on there, Sheets, Wawa, Come and Go, Maverick, all the, all the all those brands. It's major convenience retailers. It's actually not fuel company, you know, fuel brands. I find that really interesting. Yeah, because they've moved beyond the offering of just fuel. And I think you look at the food service, you look at the inside, you look at the bathrooms. They moved beyond fuel, and I know that you know prices is a major driver of of fueling opportunities, but it's also location, and then it's those other factors that we've talked about that really drive that that uh, decision. Is you know if I can fuel and I can solve some other problems that I have, if I can get a drink or I can use the restroom that's clean and safe and has a baby changing station if I need it, that's where I'm going to go. I went in a station one time, and Al, you may have seen this photo, but it's uh, the baby station. I mean, I almost made it look better than it is because I took a good photo, but the baby station had graffiti scrubbed out right above it, and you could see Ah, how that was scrubbed out. And I mean, I have a old friend from college. I mean, she asked me at one point, she does uh, some blogging for a local uh, Des Moines blog. And she said, Hey, I'm going to so-and-so city. Like, where do I stop on the way? And I remember there was a really great loves travel stops on the way that had just insanely nice restrooms. And obviously I haven't seen the women's or the family one, but I mean, if they're anything like the men's restroom and they're probably better, honestly, because guys were messy in restrooms, but, um, I mean, yeah, I highly recommend it. I said they they designed a great facility here, but that stuff matters. Uh, I mean, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing you want to keep an eye on is the is the fueling experience in the next you know five to ten years, and what does that look like? If you look back, the fueling experience hasn't really changed at all in the last twenty years, and so you're starting to see retailers go mobile. First, you're starting to see retailers change that customer experience at the fueling island to take it from something that is, you know, on the top of the list of things that they don't want to do to pleasant, you know, actually maybe even surprising delights. Maybe it's a a decent experience. And so I'd keep an eye on the retailers and see what they're doing in that area, you know, making it easier for you to use your loyalty program making it easier for you to pay, which I think is a huge part of this industry is what is that preferred point of sale? I think is where you go, you go forward. Is it the mobile? Is it tapping? Is it, you know, an actual inside customer experience at a POS? So where's that preferred point of sale? So keep an eye on that from the, the fuel retailers and the convenience store chain. You know, and where do you see some of the areas for innovation at the forecourt though? Um, 
I mean, at the end of the day, it's really easy for me to pull a card out and swipe it. The only thing that's frustrating, or I guess at this point, enter a chip, um, which is a whole nother issue there right now with uh, <laughs> that mandate. But at the end of the day, it's just not that hard for me to do that. Now, what makes it hard is when I get asked about the car wash, when I'm asked about the loyalty program, when I'm asked, I've had to answer four or five questions on something. So I'm like, it's 10 degrees outside and I just like my, I'm freezing. I want to fill up my car. But, um, you know, to the point about innovation, I was at a store in Australia that had a system where you pull up and you can just basically swipe a QR code, um, fill up and leave. It's, yeah, it's just that simple. There was, there was another one or there's another one that just takes a pic, you know, scans a picture of your license plate and knows who you are because you've set it up. You literally pull up and just fill up your car and drive away and it bills you. It's almost like in a way, almost wow. like a checkout free retail store. Yeah, it is, it is checkout-free retail, and people have been talking about checkout-free for the inside, but they haven't been talking about that for the forecourt as much. But think about that if you put beacons into your dispensers and you can recognize you know, who is there and then reward them for loyalty. If you can you know, verify their face via these um, you know, new technologies that are coming out or take pictures of their license plate and bill them afterwards, you know, if you could stop, fill up, get back in your car and go and they recognize you and they send the the uh the receipt right to your email and give you the rewards points so you don't have to ask for what your phone number is do you want a receipt do you want a car wash well i don't you know don't ever want a car wash so don't ask me that mm-hmm. um you know it's a game of 21 questions and you're going to see retailers get to a point where they're going to get rid of those questions they're going to have your preferences saved and you're going to be able to just pull up fill up and then leave yeah, that's interesting. You know, speaking of checkout free retail, what's a what's your opinion on that? Have have you been to an Amazon Go yet or I've not been to an Amazon Go, no. What do you what do you think about that that tech? I I mean, here's 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 my personal opinion. I I think it's the best thing ever. I mean, I've got an Am- there's an Amazon Go bag on the floor over there actually. <laughs> I love Amazon Go, but it's just, you know, we just got out of Christmas and you watch, you know, if anyone who watched National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation will see the B-roll of the credit card imprinter swiping when Clark goes shopping uh, for his wife. And it's I wonder, you know, some of the younger kids who are like, what's that? You know, what is that? But there's an evolution of how you get permission to leave a store and how a form of payment is taken. And Right now, we walk up to a counter, and we have someone scan our items, and then we scan the card ourselves, and we they give us permission to leave. The technology exists now to just track what you take and charge you. You, you really don't need to have that, or you're not going to need to have that in the near future. And um, I just find I find it to be the best thing ever because what it does really, and I saw this at Amazon Go, it frees up the employees to do everything else that's on their plate. They, Absolutely. they don't have to stand behind a counter and do this. They can go stock the shelves. They can talk to the employees. They can clean. They can do whatever. Well, they can provide that customer service that that uh, customer is looking for, whether it's a long conversation or a short conversation. They can provide that. They can do the other things that that really make a retailer a retailer. And they can, you know, if they're a purpose-based retailer, they can fulfill that purpose for that customer. And I cannot wait for this technology to be ubiquitous across the, the uh, industry when I am going even self-checkout now feels like it's kind of cumbersome. I yeah. have to stop. I have to wait for somebody to have this um, a checkout open. I have to scan the items myself. For me, I cannot wait for that technology to be here where I can walk in and walk out. Um, and it is here, but uh, throughout the industry. You know who really needs is, is Aldi. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, sorry, Aldi, I, I love you guys, but um, you know, I, I've noticed that um, their their bags of steamable broccoli are like half to a third of what everyone else sells them for. So I'll go there and get armfuls of it, and um, never fails. There's three, four deep in every checkout aisle, and I I know their cashiers move fast, but I mean, checkout free retail, I just walk out the door. And the store format is not that large at Aldi. I, I mean, it's not much large. It's it's easier to put a system like that in an Aldi than it is in a major grocer. It's interesting to look at Aldi. Their square footage is getting very close to the convenience store yeah. square footage. And so it's interesting to see the the cross-section between are we carrying fresh produce in our convenience stores and, and where's Aldi going with their merchandising too? I think they're a retailer to keep an eye on. Which it's... Interesting. I mean, if you go into a K, you know, a KT or a Hy-Vee Fast and Fresh, they've got those small groceries. Um, KT has actually a pretty, a pretty solid produce selection. Like it's, it's good stuff, especially if you want bananas. But for other things too, um, it, it kind of just fits that gap between a grocery store. And I have to laugh. You know, they, they've, they're building all over Des Moines now. And uh, my own stepmom, if she's listening, she'll laugh at this. But uh, <laughs> overnight, when the a KT showed up near their house, suddenly their fridge is full of KT products. And they swear by it, but you know they they move in, they blanket the neighborhood with all these coupons, and we're new to the neighborhood, and it's a brilliant strategy. But they they just kill it on the small groceries. Yeah, and they might not get the um, they might not get the trip where somebody orders online, like you were saying, I'll order online and then pick up in in store in a locker. Because I saw that yesterday when I was at the grocery. They may not get that order, but they're going to get the order where we need the bananas, the milk all these other small things that those are the trips um, that people are taking in between these large grocery uh, runs. And so they're going to continue to get those trips if they have those items. You know, and, and I think what's interesting too, with the younger customers now, uh, Gen Z, especially, it's just, um, I mean, you've had folks that have spent their whole life being at, being in the driver's seat from a retail point of view. I mean, They've been on Amazon their whole life. They get what they want. They get recommendations based on what they've bought that are, in Amazon's case, extremely accurate. Um, you know, and it probably feels a little weird to go to a store that only allows access to their products through the POS at the physical store. It probably feels outdated. And, you know, I don't know what the answer is with that. I don't, but I'm curious to see how that plays out. Yeah. What's your preferred point of sale? Where do you want to check out and where do you want your transaction to happen? Yeah, that's where I, and that's where I think, you know, a customer like that is probably going to see something like GoPuff and think, oh, this makes sense. <laughs> get a bag, get a bag of chips. In fact, GoPuff, I saw they, they put out sort of a um, overview of what happened last year with their sales and they broke it down by region. They went into like who buys what at what times of the day. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, gosh, I forget what it's called, but if you go to their newsroom on their website, you could probably find it. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, I think retailers are going to have to, th- you know, how, how, how else can we, you know, um, provide customers access to our products? Like what other channels are there to access us? And can't, pro- you know, probably can't just be a point of sale. But on a different topic, though, I'm curious for your thoughts. What do you think about the Tesla Cybertruck? Tesla Cybertruck. I, I thought that was a pretty cool uh, demonstration that Elon did. I, um, yeah, I grew up in the Midwest, and so it was the F-150 everywhere. So it was a stark contrast from that but i think it's pretty cool to see the uh kind of the evolution of where they're going i think one of the coolest things that tesla has done for the industry not not just putting batteries into cars is actually on the inside of the vehicle if you look 
you know, they pushed other manufacturers to adopt technology that uh, these other OEMs had on their roadmap, but it wasn't for the next seven years. And so you look at some of these uh, vehicles that have CD players in them still in, you know, 2015, 16, 17. And Tesla comes in and says, well, we're just going to take the best technology out there. And we're going to put a 20-inch tablet in here that, you know, guides you where you need to go and, and speaks back to you. So I think it's very cool what they've done. They, I think they've pushed the industry more on that side maybe than they have on the EV side. But I'm I'm pretty excited to see that come come out. I know you're, you know, if you do look at Ford, they have a electric F-150 that they're going to roll out with. They took a gamble on the aluminum body F-150. That worked out well for them. Uh, so that's, it's interesting to see where that will go, but see, pretty cool. I like the video where they hooked up a cyber truck to an F-150 and, uh, you know, all the Ford enthusiasts were just losing their cool over this. Um, and basically the cyber truck just hauled it up a hill and just pull, just yanked the F-150 away while it was trying to pull the Tesla. And um, I remember seeing on Twitter, all, you know, again, all the Ford guys are like, oh, well, what, what model was that? No, you should have used this. And the point is, I mean, they started an argument there and they were trying to show this is a high performance vehicle. This isn't a joke. Um, and you see that with the Tesla cars, the acceleration on those is absolutely insane. It's at the level of an exotic sports car. Yeah, it is. If not, absolutely. in many cases, faster. You know, and and that's where, to your point about Ford country, I, I mean, yeah, we're we're in the middle of Ford country. I, I, I mean, we see people here putting these trucks on like fifteen hundred dollar a month payments and buying these trucks at the price of luxury cars. It's just crazy, and it, I mean, we see it all over here. But um, I wonder if and I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. Um, folks who are going for performance are going to just have to accept at a certain point that it's coming from the electric side of the business. And I it wonder, is, yeah. and I wonder what impact that's going to have. Well, I think if you look at the, I think the manufacturers understand that. And you, you look at uh, EV and the performance, you can't really question the performance of the EV and the batteries. So the question is, are they going to adopt that into their own lineup and you're going to have people who will continue to go with liquid fuels, but you also have people that want that performance and want um, a few less components in their vehicle, and so they'll they'll go EV. Now, Al, uh, would you drive a Cybertruck? Yeah, I probably would. You know, I was I was, you know, we uh, we we do a technology segment every week on the show, and our tech guy came on and really explained the Tesla to me in a way I'd never heard it explained before. And it's really smart. My understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys know more about this than me, but there's like a little separate engine over each tire. Is that correct? That each wheel has a little separate engine over it? And uh, it seemed very, very smart. And this guy went on and on, and, and he drives a big truck, a big, uh, I mean, it's Louisiana. Everybody's got a white truck down here. And uh, he drives a big, giant white truck. And uh, But he said, God, man, this Tesla is unbelievable. Uh, and uh, the technology inside was incredible. I'm, I, I hope we get a chance to uh, do, do, do a deep dive on the truck on the show one day. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I absolutely would. I, you know, the thing down here, I don't know about, you know, you guys, you know, you're in the Midwest, you're in Des Moines. It's, it's you know, how are you going to fuel these things up when you're on the road? That would be my question. I think you're going to see more retailers pay attention to EV and especially on the corridors and the interstate locations. I think that's where it starts is how do you get from one point to another point. Um, as fast charging improves and the time to charge goes down, 
you may see more convenience retailers putting these EV chargers in. And I, and I say that because the, the home charging is where most of the charging occurs in the United States right mm-hmm. now. It's almost 90%, if not more. And it takes most of the night to charge your vehicle. But if you can get the charging time down to five minutes seven minutes, you're getting closer to the stop that you would have at a convenience store. And a convenience store can also give you those snacks, those things you're also stopping for. So, you know, I do see a day where the convenience store can play in that space. And the reason that they can play in that space is it's expensive to put higher uh, electrical service into a location. So you're not going to do that in every home. You're not going to do that, um, you know, on every block of every neighborhood. So the places where you can do that are these businesses that already have the corners, have the places where you stop already and fuel up. So I think that's coming. I think there's an opportunity for the convenience store uh, industry to play in that space, but it will be very interesting to see what happens in the next few years as charging times come down and battery technology increases. I know for us in Louisiana and Texas, we're going to want to see one of these things uh, painted in camouflage with a hunting dog in the back and, uh, you know, take it out to the uh, duck camp. That's that's what we're going to be waiting for. I mean, to be fair, the Cybertruck is pretty much just an artist canvas, the way it's sold. Uh, I, I have a feeling you could – you're probably going to see something like that, honestly, where, where people do wild uh, yeah. paint jobs on it. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, for me personally, I think it looks great the way it is. It looks like everything I remember from Blade Runner and Total Recall. (laughs) So the person who loves cyber, like cyberpunk in me, is just, I'll be honest, I haven't wanted a car that bad um, as long as I can remember. But If you guys haven't seen the, I think it's the new Rivian, has the uh, tank turn. You have to YouTube this if you haven't, but it's a a truck, it's an electric vehicle truck that um, can spin like a tank. And so... it's on YouTube and check that out. But yeah, the performance of these vehicles is probably what's going to drive their, their adoption faster. Yeah. And it's, um, it's interesting too, because I mean, there's a lot of consumer, there's just a lot of behavior, the way we live our lives changing right now. And you look at uh, the ability of, you know, some of these Teslas to, um, autopilot somebody somewhere i mean there's we've we've probably all seen the crazy videos i think there's one where a person uh, got a little too intoxicated and passed out in a tesla and it was driving them around the interstate um i i mean there's stuff like that out there but um pretty soon i mean we're gonna have cars that can just drive drive us now it's it's interesting you know if you talk to the folks on the autonomous vehicle side um they'll all tell you i mean we're right we're getting close to level four that's the last conversations I've had have been there. We're getting close to level four. If anyone is unfamiliar with levels of autonomous technology, just Google it. You'll get the chart uh, going up to level five. Basic idea being a level five can basically deal with any conceivable scenario. You can just get rid of the steering wheel. It's archaic and you don't need it anymore. But um, they seem to think, at least the folks I've talked to, that it's going to impact delivery first. Um, but at a certain point, the cars will probably be able to drive us. And I wonder how that's going to change 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 the retail equation a bit. Oh, I think that's going to be the massive disruption in the retail equation. I don't think that EV is going to be the disruptor. I think that's just another way that we fuel our vehicles. I think autonomous is really going to change this industry. As we mentioned, maybe at the top of the show when we were talking about distribution centers, is that might be the model going forward is that you have the products and the vehicle stops, refills at your location, and then goes and picks somebody else up. You know, and that's one of those issues, too, where sometimes, you know, different trends just converge on one point And what, you know, what are 
our end beha- our end behavior is is actually much different than what we expected. It makes me wonder. I mean, would would people get to a situation where it's not just that the car is driving itself, but the actual marketplace for what you stop and get on the road is done through the screen in the vehicle? Um, you know, whether that's a like a third like a, a third party yeah. company that powers that 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 the auto manu- that the auto manufacturer is just including. Uh, I mean, I it seems it seems like the days of everything being uh, designed by the auto manufacturer. Um, Seems like the future is more integration with other other companies um, into the final product. But you know, what if there's a marketplace through the vehicle, and then that's how you're making your decision? So now it's incumbent upon these retailers to uh, think about how how they manage that or how that's done. I mean, there, there, there's so many possibilities that open up from this. Yeah. At the end you of know, the day, you got a screen on the inside, and 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 an ad pops up, and you can just touch that screen, and your vehicle takes you there. You know, for a, a deal. Of some sort, uh, man. That's that's oh, that's going to be amazing. Or perhaps it before you even get in the vehicle, that vehicle goes there, gets the deal for you, and brings it to you, and has it waiting in there. Or there's a you know a small marketplace within the vehicle. So there's there's a lot of opportunities. I know there's a couple companies doing that right now in some in uh, ride hailing and ride sharing uh, vehicles. But yeah, the evolution of where the marketplace is 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 fascinating. Well, and, and really in advertising in general, I mean, the whole trend has been toward personalizing an advertisement to somebody just to make it that much more appealing. Um, some of that's done well, some of it's not done well, but um, yeah, that would raise that would raise a lot of possibilities if suddenly uh, you're captive in a vehicle like that and you don't have to keep your eyes on the road. I mean, advertisers are going to try to find every way they can to get in on that and display products or um, you know, use your past behavior to serve up an ad for something that you'll, you just won't be able to resist. Um, that's going to get really interesting. It will. It'll go, it'll go back to the, the question of, are you providing the delivery or the technology or are you providing the product? And the retailers will, will eventually sort themselves out and decide, you know, we're going to create the product. We're going to create something that's craveable and that's going to be our, our product or we're going to create the technology to get it to them. I mean, and that's true. At the end of the day, if someone's a big fan of Wawa hoagies, they got to go to Wawa to get those. I mean, uh, it wasn't Market Force in 2018 found they were America's top QSR sandwich chain. I think they slipped to what was it, number three last year, but still, I mean, they're in the running. The point being, a convenience store is one of America's most popular QSR sandwiches. Um, I mean, that's that's a craveable product. I, I always think it kind of comes down to this. It's like, is it craveable? Is it caterable? And would you go out of your way to get it? I mean, if you wouldn't bring it and serve it to a group of people, then it's, you know, that's an issue. Um, if you don't crave it, that's definitely an issue. But if you wouldn't go out of your way to get it, um, it's it's just not a standout product. I mean, if you can hit all of those, you've got something that people are, are, are just going to, they're going to fight to get. Yeah, I wonder how, as I listen to all this and think about this, I think in our business, uh, you know, we're constantly trying to figure out how uh, the television viewer is evolving. And, uh, you know, what are we doing to engage them? Or are we engaging them, engaging the way they uh, they need to be engaged? You know, people are streaming. And so I'm thinking, wow, how is how is how is everybody evolving when it comes to retail? Uh, you know, you're still going to have people who my age, you know, 20 years younger, people your age who maybe want a different kind of experience. But the people coming up, uh, you know, who are in their 20s, I mean, this is going to be uh, the, the whole evolution of, of the of, you know, the customer is to me, that's just going to be a daunting thing to deal with because I know it's daunting in TV. Yeah, there's going to be some casualties, though. I, I mean, like I had to laugh. I saw an article the other day where JCPenney's has a test store in Texas. And one of the things that they're 
trying to experiment with is putting like a video game lounge in there apparently. And I, I just had to shake my head. I'm like, it's like your customers don't already have a switch, a PS4 or a good PC at home. What are you possibly going to provide that is going to convince them to go play in that video game lounge? I, I, I honestly can't think of anything. Now, there's a part of me, you know, some of these trends tend to be circular. And there's part of me that looks back nostalgic to the days of uh, LAN parties. You know, I remember bringing like my high-end gaming laptop in high school to LAN parties and I'd hook up. And it was fun because it was social in a way that online gaming couldn't capture. Um, I don't know if that'll ever come back. But um, yeah, it, it just seems like there's there's some folks where they have a real disconnect with the way their customers are living their lives. And I think there's going to be some more casualties. I mean, 20, 2019 was a big year for retailers closing. A lot of those, a lot of those numbers were impacted by some, you know, specific chains that went out of business um, and kind of offset the number. But I think 2020, we're going to, we'll, we'll probably see some more of that. To L, your, you know, to your point, no, Al, um, you know, you kind of see the evolution of it in the, in the past, we had these mom and pop stores that sold individual things, and then we we consolidated and we got the WalMarts and the big box retailers that sold everything, right? And now we're getting to a point where it might go back to individuals serving individual needs, more companies, and it dispersing back out. So I think the you know it's kind of an ebb and flow that just naturally happens in the in this space and in business in general. You know, I was telling Frank yesterday. Um, you know, we live in a town with just just awful, awful traffic, especially in the holidays. And so we have this terrible traffic. And my wife goes to the mall, and there's no one at the mall. And and she was baffled. Like, where are all these people going? Well, on Christmas Eve, I went to a store. Um, it's owned by, by a very nice lady. Um, kind of upscale. They sell candles for $25. You know, jewelry, uh, like a lot of Louisiana products, but kind of upscale products. There must have been a hundred customers in that store at nine thirty in the morning with at least twenty employees. I was stunned at the volume of business in this place. It's um, it's it's in a shopping center. Uh, I figured I was going to go in there, pop in, pop out. No way. Uh, the products were were unique and 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 not cheap. And I thought, wow, is this where we're going? Uh, and I spoke to the owner and, you know, she said, yeah, we're busy like this all the time. And so I'm wondering where this kind of place fits because, uh, I, I, I was stunned. I got to tell you, I don't have an answer, but I mean, I was just, I couldn't believe how many people were in this very nice store and she's actually moving to a larger location now because she can't, can't handle the volume of business she's doing. But I mean, you know, it, it's like something that maybe at one time you might have seen a place like this in a mall, but they had candles, they had jewelry, um, they had stuff for kids, kind of unusual upscale, uh, you know, toys, things like that. It, it was it was really different. I wonder if, and I don't know what you would call that. I don't know what, what category that would fit into. I mean, it sounds like the East Village in Des Moines. It does. That's what that sounds like. Really? Yeah. Of, uh, you know, just boutique stores, locally produced products. I, I, I mean, people people like stuff like that, and they're happy to drive out of their way and get something unique. It's just, um, you know, man, I, you know, I, I come back to Yonkers before they went bankrupt and, and with Bonton, and I just think of, like, what were they really selling in there? Like, you remember going to the clothing sections, and you'd have these just, it's like, I hate to use the word grandpa clothes, because, like, you know, my grandpa doesn't dress like that, but these were just the most <laughs> boring clothes. And I'm thinking, who is a target customer here? Yeah, you, you have an anchor store at a mall, and you're stuffing it with stuff that, like, who does this even really appeal to? Like the 
the chaps clothes. You remember those old chaps sweaters that, you know, what's that, what's that guy, uh, Ken Bone or whatever, who was on the political debate? It was like, they, it was a store to dress that guy. Yeah. It, you know, I was curious about this store. I asked one lady, you know, why would you fight the crowd here? And she said, oh, they gift wrap for free. And I'm like, man, there is no way I would wait in line this long. I'd go home and, and you know, put it together with the way I do it, which is with duct tape and a, and a butcher knife to try to gift wrap something. I'm, but is gift wrapping that big a deal to people, I, you know, that, that I don't know. got all these folks in? 9.30 in the morning. It was crazy. It was just crazy. Well, For Frank, it's socks. It's Nike socks. Custom socks. <laughs> Nike I, socks. I mean, hey, I'll take Nike socks out of that vending machine. If someone's a Nike Plus member, feel free to send them my way. But, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, we just forget that retail can be fun. Um, yeah. And, some, and some, some folks have just lost the excitement and the fun of retail. It is fun to go. Great point. It's fun to go shopping. It's fun to go and discover things. Um, but it, it, again, it just comes back to like there's there's a place to provide a meaningful experience that you can't get through the internet. I mean, virtually every direct to consumer brand that started as an online only company is in some shape or form in physical retail right now. I have Casper pillows not because I bought them on their website. I mean, I don't know what it feels like. I'm I'm not going to order that. But they had it out at NCAP and Target, and whew, I. Knocked a bunch of those into my cart and went straight to the counter. They're great. I love them. Um, tough to needle, though. Like, I still want that obnoxiously expensive duvet cover because I touched one at a store in Seattle. I would have never bought something that costs that much money online without having looked at it or touched it or experienced it. And um, so there, there is a place for that. But at the same time, we see this in the convenience business. You've got to provide a meaningfully convenient experience. And if you don't, I mean, the dollar stores are coming for your business. GoPuff's coming for your business. QSRs are going to try to steal a little bit of it. I mean, you know, you know, I, I came into this industry through, through some very non-traditional ways. And one of the things I notice is it's, it's like an insular community. You've got your own trade shows, your own publications, your own individual kind of culture. Uh, but the pharmacy business has it. The QSRs have some of that similar. They got their own events. It's We forget that the customer doesn't see this distinction. They just see a bunch of places to get what they need at the end of the day. And I think that's going to continue. But so as we kind of end this out, um, wanted to take a chance and ask, so what are what are you personally like paying attention to that you're really excited about for tw- you know for 2020 and beyond? Like what what do you get up and pull open on Google News and search for? So my wife will tell you every time we're traveling, I, I inevitably conversation goes to autonomous vehicles and how I don't want to be driving and how someday that it will be a boutique industry to go down a, a highway and you'll have to pay to get on it and and you can drive on it and then you know that that will be the boutique industry. So it. Autonomous vehicles, although they're a little ways off, that really, um, you know, gets me excited about the future. And I, I don't think we're going to see it in 2020, obviously, but autonomous vehicles, um, the evolution of EV, I think is a very interesting topic. This is just another chapter in the evolution of fuels. I think we'll see a world where liquid fuels will still remain dominant, but EVs will will come in their own right and will uh, probably get the best of both worlds for the near term here. So uh, those two things really get me excited. Do you think we'll ever reach a point where piloting a car without um, without the actual tech driving for you is going to be considered putting other lives at risk? You know, that's a good question. I, I can't remember the manufacturer that came out uh, recently and talked about they were making the decision to, to prioritize the life inside the vehicle. Um, so I can't remember if it was BMW or if it was 
um, Ford that came out and said that. But yeah, that is that's a good question. Do you save the the life inside the vehicle, or do you avoid the um, group of people standing on the the corner? That's yeah, that's a good question. I I mean, yeah, people always go crazy over the trolley problem, but I always um, I mean, at the end of the day, I just always think, look, I mean even the cars right now are probably better drivers than me. Not that because I'm a bad driver, but because, I mean, what kind of tech am I driving with? I've got two eyeballs that are geared straight ahead of me. I mean, I don't have eyes on the side of my head. I don't, I, I see poorly in the dark. Um, God forbid it's raining. And then you're on an interstate where you can't even see the lines because of the lights reflecting off of them. It's, uh, I mean, these cars just have, are equipped with better detection technology than a human being currently possesses. Yeah, I think the safety factor of autonomous vehicles is really what uh, gets me excited. I, I enjoy driving, but, um, you know, if you can save some lives on the road, I think that's a pretty cool thing. And, and autonomous vehicles will be a much safer driver than all of us combined. So excited to see the development of that. Yeah, I I would love to be able to just kick back in a car and relax, which, you know, I think is going to open up I think I wonder if that's going to change if people commute to work, though, because I I mean, even now, don't 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 you think we we're starting to really look, take a hard look at the idea of moving an hour away from where you work and commuting in to an office to do something you could have done at, at a home office and then commute back and cut hour and a half, two hours or more out of your day. Yeah, I think the same reason that the convenience store industry is being pushed to be more convenient and save time, I think you're people are looking at that in other parts of their life and saying, well, do I really want to be commuting an hour and 20 minutes in and an hour and 20 minutes back? You know, are there better ways to do that? Can I use technology to work from home or, or partially remote? Can I do that? So I think people are really going back and taking a fine comb to all the, the ways that they spend their time. See, I wonder if it could lead to a shorter workday too, in a certain sense, because like, all right, let's say in your city, like, like LA where the traffic is just atrocious on a daily basis. I mean, even at times when it doesn't seem like it even should be. And let's say you commuted in for two hours in a car, that's effectively an office and you're working. Why would you need to spend eight hours at an office once you get there? If you're going to do essentially that much work driving back and forth just to say that I was here for eight hours because somewhere it was decided that that's a normal work day. It seems like that would force a, a conversation about like, when do I really need to be here? Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I think about driverless cars, you know, we, we really, I was thinking, what about the pedestrian experience? When you look both ways to cross the street and you see a car coming with, without someone behind the steering wheel, someone sitting in, you know, uh, you know, on on the passenger side or in the back, or I don't know how these things would work, but man, I wonder, uh, I wonder how the pedestrians will feel. That's a good question. I mean, I think the autonomous vehicle, um, that topic, you probably noticed this too. I, I feel like they are put under an unfair standard when it comes to wrecks. I remember the incident in Arizona uh, when that yeah. um, self-driving Uber. A clobbered a person. And um, I was actually just there like the week before, I think it was a week before. And uh, my Uber driver pointed out one of those Volvo SUVs that had the that had that tech installed. He pointed at it and he goes, Hey, that's a future right there. And I'm like, Well, I know it's a you're the com- sadly the company or for better or worse, the company you work for is like, very much trying to get rid of drivers right now. So um, yeah, that probably is the future. But 
I mean, I, I watched that video. I watched a video from that car, and I don't think I would have been able to avoid that person either. It was dark. They just came out of nowhere. Um, but then, of course, it's taken as a massive in indictment of, uh, of autonomous vehicle technology. I saw an article where I think it was an Apple vehicle had run into some, like, another car. Or, or had, no, was involved in an accident. The headline read, you know, autonomous vehicle involved in a wreck. And you're thinking it, they hit somebody. No, another car rear-ended the autonomous vehicle. They didn't even do anything wrong. But whenever this happens, it's just like the articles show up and just just come down hard on AV on AV technology. It seems a little unfair to me. I think it's just naturally human to be resistant to change, and yeah. it, it's scary. So I think that's probably what we see. And you go back in history and you look at any major technology that comes out, there's always um, you know kind of the scare tactics and things that come out where everybody's afraid at first, but then the adoption comes and we see the benefits. So I think we see that with self-checkout too. Yeah. I've seen people on Facebook leaving comments about, yeah, they wanted me to use the self-checkout. Uh, but I, I told them I don't work here. <laughs> I'm over here <laughs> like, well, enjoy waiting in line. Cause <laughs> I got two items and I'm gone. Uh, you know, you see some of that. I, I even saw someone on NPR literally arguing that, um, <laughs> arguing that self-checkouts are bad because, uh, they're going to lead to job losses. And I get that argument, but it also seems weird to say we need to just pay people to do something we don't need them to do at the end of the day. And honestly, some of that labor is probably going to be reallocated anyway to do other stuff. I mean, I've seen tons of comments from folks at uh, large retailers where they've installed those and they said, yeah, they just reallocated us to do other stuff in the store. Yeah. And the good retailers, well, I was in Target the other day and they had, are now putting more and more of these self-checkouts in and I had a return to make and I went in and made the return. Well, there were four or five people at the uh, customer service desk. And that is typically oh. one or two people at the right. customer service desk. And there's a line of four or five people. There were four or five employees there. And so my mind thought, okay, they're probably taking the labor hours and moving them to the places where it actually makes a difference in their business. And so I think it's probably just a job reallocation and the good uh, retailers will do that. You know, when you take a store like Walmart, um, Walmart, of course, is, is trying to be so aggressive on their e-commerce right now. Um, I mean, even having those like massive pickup container machines in their stores. And um, it almost makes me more likely to use them because I know that if I need to return something, I don't have to figure out how I'm going to get it to a UPS store, which uh, I've never been to one that provides a good experience. Don't get me started on UPS store. Um, but I don't have to figure out how I'm going to get there, how I'm going to do any of that. I, I'll just go to the Walmart that's right by me. And I'll just go drop it off at the customer service counter and they'll take care of that. But um, sometimes there's some big lines there. If they had a few more people working at that counter, it, it'd make for a really, a really relevant and compelling experience, honestly, to have yeah. that, that easy return available. Well, you're seeing Kohl's do that now, too, where you can take your Amazon package and drop it off at, yeah. at the Kohl's store. And I think that's the next big opportunity for retailers is taking the, I don't want to say friction, but taking the friction out of that return process because that is... You have to print the label. You have to get the box. You have to take it to the store. So I think that is the next evolution of where could you add convenience to a retail experiences in that return transaction. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so moving on here before we close out, I always want to ask a couple questions of all of our guests, and I'm going to add a few new ones here. But um, just what's 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 your advice for somebody who's getting into the fuel and convenience industry who just got that first job out of college or is considering it like a career change? Sure. Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, develop a learner mindset. I think always staying curious is probably the best advice that I could give. 
this is an industry that you interact with every day, but if you aren't in it, uh, you don't know a whole lot about it. And so, especially on the fuel side, you get into it and there's a lot of intricacies um, that are in the, the industry. So, you know, keeping an open mind, always staying curious and having that learner mindset is what I would recommend. And, um, you know, just in the past few years, are, are there any books, any podcast, anything that you've listened or consumed that just been really compelling that you would want to share with somebody? Yeah, absolutely. I always uh, recommend a few books and then a few podcasts and actually a, um, a tool to, to uh, use those. But for the book side, uh, I typically recommend Ready Player One, which is made into a movie. But if you read the book, it's one of those cases where the book is you know, transforms you into a, a place that the movie just doesn't get you to. So that's a, a great read. Uh, Good to Great is also another book that I would recommend. The Third Wave and then The 4-Hour Workweek. Um, as far as podcasts go, uh, on my list, Reply All, 99% Invisible. Uh, I do like Hardcore History if you haven't checked that one out. Uh, those are really well done. And I... Uh, I've been recently getting into the Orvis Fly Fishing Podcast. So if you haven't checked that one out and you're fly fishing, uh, take a look at that one. And the tool that I want to mention is uh, Blinkist. And so I've uh, been a connoisseur of podcasts for a long time, and I end up on 2x speed uh, for most of podcasts once you get going so I can consume a lot more content. But Blinkist is a service that allows you to uh, consume books in a much quicker fashion. It uh, takes the book and creates the what you know, or the old cliff note version, and so it'll condense it down and allow you to take kind of the main points away from it, and then you can purchase it or read it in full if you uh, get into it. So those would be the the recommendations I have. Well, that's a that's a great recommendation. Yeah. Well, Sam, thanks for coming on the podcast here third guest of the Inconvenience Podcast. and uh, Yeah, thanks, Sam. You're great. Appreciate it. If anybody wants to get in contact with you, what is the best way to connect? Yeah, I would just connect on LinkedIn. Uh, you can search my name on LinkedIn, and, and we can start a conversation from there. And I really appreciate you guys having me on on the podcast, uh, starting off the decade with a bang. Yeah. First hey, guest man. of 2020. That's true. You're our first guest of the new decade. <laughs> and w- w- I tell you what, we're going to have you on in 2030. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Sam. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Sam.